So we're going to go ahead and get started, uh, kick it off with a quote from uh, Michael Goheen back in 2001. So it's a little dated, um, but I still think it's going to be helpful for our discussion. Um, for various reasons, missiology has been marginalized in the academic curriculum. It is treated as a specialized discipline for those called to that part of the church's ministry. Uh, faithfulness to the gospel in any calling, not least the academic profession, demands commitment to the biblical story centered in Christ as the real story of the world, an interaction with culture that embraces its forms but challenges and fills them with new content through the gospel, and an ecumenical dialogue that offers mutual correction and enrichment. Christian scholars would do well to wrestle with the insight from missiology in their academic callings. So we're going to start there and ask, do you think that Goheen's statement is uh, what he concluded um, that missiology has been marginalized in academic curriculum is correct? And if so, why? And what would you do to correct that? We'll start with. Yeah, so I think he's right that, uh, you know, so missiology in, in the American Academy, missiology is treated as an applied or practical discipline. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. I think it's more than that. It's that and yet it's more. I think often the practical and applied disciplines are relegated to the status of inferior disciplines, mm -hmm. not as important as biblical studies or systematic theology. And, uh, you know, the uh, missiologists tend to not be treated with the, the same sort of respect, I think, that, that somebody in one of the more serious disciplines might uh, be treated. So I do think that missiology is an applied or practical discipline, but it's more than that. It's uh, actually a part of theology as I see it. Um, so as I see it, theology, if you would take systematic theology for a moment, because I teach that and missiology, I think that a good systematic theology arises from a church who is fully participating in the Christian mission. And I mean church in the universal sense there, in more universal sense. And then at the same time that that uh, systematic theology, if it's healthy, will in turn drive the church deeper and further in Christian mission. So it arises from mission and in turn drives us deeper and further into it. Um, and so I, I really see missiology as central and crucial uh, to the life of a seminary uh, or to uh, higher education. So, yeah, in, in terms of being marginalized, I've, I've felt this at times before, uh, just in uh, some, uh, some pro uh, professional or academic meetings that I've been to, uh, kind of uh, pushed to the side or marginalized because my discipline is missiology proper. And uh, even though I have uh, graduate level study in theologies and div uh, studies, my uh, my terminal degree is a doctor of missiology. And so oftentimes that's viewed as being substandard. Oftentimes it's viewed as being something that is not as important in the realm of academia. Um, and I would agree with what Dr. Ashford shared. I would say that there's a symbiotic relationship between uh, missions and theology that not only in turn, and I know we'll probably get into missiological method here in just a little bit, but I believe that not only should we have a theologically driven missiology, but we should also acknowledge that all of our theology um, ultimately has been hammered out and discerned as a result of missiological practices. And so uh, for that reason, I think that um, missiology should be considered as uh, central in terms of academic life and pursuit. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot different to say. Just to add to that, that um, I, I do uh, agree with Drs. Ashford and uh, Dr. Robinson that uh, both missiology and theology really are uh, kind of two sides of, of, of the same coin, that there's a symbiotic relationship, I think, in the academy. There has been some marginalization, um, uh, but, uh, but I agree. I, I think missiology is both a, um, a discipline, but it's also an entire field. And so I think that's where it can be expanded um, and built upon. Uh, you know, I think here in our, in our setting, uh, it's not as marginalized. Um, uh, you know, I, I think in others, while it can be marginalized, I, I think 
sometimes we think of marginalization as uh, only uh, it's kind of pushed off to the side. I think sometimes within missiology, because there are some specific things to the field, uh, that yes, it's it's a, a biblical and theological study. There's also kind of contextual historical study uh, with social sciences. Um, there's also uh, matters that are more current. I think sometimes marginalization happens when um, everyone, uh, no matter what field they're in, thinks that they can have a loud and clear voice within the missiological realm. And so I think at that point, um, I think that marginalization becomes it becomes more watered down than marginalized. And so I think there are some specific things within missiology, but I would agree with these two men um, that, as you see even the biblical record, uh, that it, it is both theological and missiological from the first page to the last page. So. Well, uh, Dr. Ashford, you mentioned uh, that missiology is a part of theology, mm -hmm. and Dr. Robinson talked about it's a symbiotic relationship. Could you guys uh, expound upon that a little bit more and how that uh, plays out in theology? How does missiology, uh, how is it a part of theology? Yeah, so how is missiology a part of theology? Um, uh, so one thing I would say is if you were to take the Apostle Paul, for example, mm -hmm. Um, Paul forged his theology in the crucible of mission, right. and mission in the sense of even intercultural missions. Mm -hmm. He was planting churches, and, mm -hmm. and that's where he forged his theology. And the church's healthiest theological developments have always arisen when the church was participating fully in the Christian mission. Mm -hmm. Its aberrant theology has tended to grow, for example, in the 20th century, 18th, 19th, and 20th century, in the Enlightenment period and modernity, mm -hmm. um, when the church was not fully participating right. in the Christian mission. When you had liberal revisionist scholars whose mission seemed to be more of a full frontal embrace of uh, poisonous uh, modern ideologies. Right. And so, um, so you look at Paul, but not just Paul. I would say that the Old Testament mm -hmm. um, prophets right. who wrote scripture and prophesied were doing so uh, while fully participating in Israel's mission. And I think there is a strong continuity between mm -hmm. Israel's mission and the church's mission, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> practically speaking, when I teach systematic theology, one thing that I point out to students is that the concept of mission could serve as a locus of systematic theology, mm -hmm. just like mm -hmm. Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, sin and salvation. But I don't treat it as a locus of theology. What I do is I've got, I've got major eight, eight loci or eight heads of doctrine, and then I take the concepts of mission, covenant, and kingdom, mm -hmm. and I weave them as threads this way, horizontally through the eight heads of doctrine. And so the concept of mission, I think, is woven throughout the whole thing. And then practically speaking, missions as an applied activity, I try to show how each doctrine issues, how it should shape the way we do missions. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a very, there's a, there's a, take the most abstract doctrine we've got, the doctrine of the Trinity. And I think the doctrine of the Trinity affects, in a real way, practice on the mission field. And not just that we expect cognitive assent to the fact that God is triune, but the, the fact that God is Trinity affects the way you plant churches and communicate cross-culturally. I'll leave that as a teaser. If you want to know how that's the case, uh, we can talk afterwards. I think specifically, um, you know, listen to what Dr. Ashford said with regards to uh, New Testament develop of, of mission and theology. Think about the Apostle Paul, and oftentimes uh, in the academy, people talk about the book of Romans and how uh, Paul's letter to the church at Rome is such a theological treatise, right, that has really shaped um, the landscape of, of the church. Um, but when I read uh, Paul's letter to the church at Rome uh, as a missiologist, what I see is a, a missionary support letter mm -hmm. that's given theological grounding. Mm -hmm. And so what he's doing from Romans chapter 1 up through Romans chapter 12 is he's laying a, a groundwork for his ask that comes in Romans chapter 15 saying, hey, I'm passing through Rome. And I've laid a foundation for why you should assist me as I proceed to take the gospel forward to Spain. And so uh, I think that that symbiotic relationship is exemplified even in that letter that uh, we should view um, mm -hmm. uh, the, the writings of the Apostle Paul uh, as uh, certainly as missionary letters uh, that are driven or grounded in theological concepts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything you want to add? 
Well, I mean, the only thing I would say, just to kind of bring it more uh, contemporary, or somebody that's modeled that well, um, uh, missiologist David Bosch uh, from South Africa passed away uh, in the 20th uh, edition uh, of his uh, kind of magnum opus, Transforming Mission. Uh, William Burroughs wrote that David Bosch really set the stage for this interaction between theology and mission, that he held the Bible in one hand, the newspaper in the other, and always had an eye on the Missio Dei. And so just, it's lived out in such a way that there's theological um, stability and girth and then missiological application in every area of life. So, All right, so what are some ways that these are young scholars, um, up-and-coming scholars and uh, current scholars who are here at the uh, at uh, Southeastern now or in evangelicalism altogether, how can they integrate missiology into um, their, uh, in, into academics. What are some ways we can incorporate missions and missiology into academics? Well, I mean, we haven't yet defined what missiology is or mission or mission. So if I were to answer this, I would have to go ahead and put my definition on the table first. So if I were going to argue, um, you know, say what I think the missio dei is, the mission of God, I would say something like this. <clears throat> it's God, God's mission is to glorify himself by... Uh, redeeming his imagers and um, and restoring his good creation. Those two things. And usually that second one is not mentioned. Um, if I were to mention the Christian mission, I would say that the Christian mission is to glorify God by participating in the redemption of his imagers and participating appropriately as a preview of the day when he will restore uh, his good creation. If I were to get down to international missions, I would say that as we are sent to cross cultural boundaries and linguistic boundaries, that we will glorify the Lord Christ by redeeming his imagers and being a preview of the day in which he uh, restores his good creation. Now, you understand redeeming imagers. We're Baptists. We've talked about that forever. Um, and so that is central and it is vital. Let me emphasize, let me tell you what I mean by the other one. The scriptures teach us that God has always intended for his imagers to develop the hidden potentials of creation. Be fruitful and multiply, till the soil, make something out of what I've given you. This is what it means to be human. Well, now, after the fall, we still do that, and we do it badly instead of doing it well. We do it in a, well that's, a way that's misdirected, uh, corrupted, misdirected toward idols instead of toward the one true and living God. And so as we participate in the Christian mission, we want our social and cultural activities, the multiplying and the tilling, to point to Christ instead of pointing to false gods. And once you put it that way, it ropes every academic discipline into the Christian mission. Mm -hmm. Any academic discipline in any university, not just in the seminary. A mathematician, a veterinarian, any person ought to be redirecting the realities that they teach about toward Christ, um, these physical material realities, right? Mm -hmm. um, as, a, as a way of being a preview of his coming kingdom, that when all things will be redirected toward Christ. Now, practically on the mission field, international missions, I think, is really the focus of this discussion, probably. I think what that means is that when a church planner goes and plants a church and wins people to Christ, and that's what a missionary does. He plants churches and disciples believers who see all of life as rife with potential for missionality. Mm -hmm. So these believers want to bring everything in their lives under submission to the lordship of Christ Jesus to enter into any arena in society or culture, discern how that arena has been corrupted and misdirected by sin and idolatry, and then figure out how they can redirect it toward Christ. So that when they speak a word about the gospel, mm -hmm. that their deeds match their speech. Mm -hmm. So that our lives are a seamless tapestry of word and deed. Mm -hmm. All of which point to Christ. Mm -hmm. so, so that ropes in all the disciplines of the academy. And from what I understand, there's a, a really, really top shelf book <laughs> that was released um, yeah. recently. It sold twos and threes of copies. Wow. Related to wow. this concept yeah. called uh, Every Square Inch. Uh, <laughs> wow. Run to the bookstore and pick that up as soon as possible. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, Dougal, with, which I agree with, with everything that Dr. Ashford uh, uh, just shared there, um, in, in terms of making that jump to yeah. specifically the question of how can people hear. Uh, in at Southeastern Seminary, uh, you know, hold to this academic pursuit while participating uh, in in mission. I, I think that honestly, uh, we see again a pattern for this in the Book of Acts. 
uh, you know, the, the theology that's developed and uh, what we refer to as orthodox theology in the church today was developed by people who were on mission. And what I mean by that is that unless you're participating in God's mission, you're not even asking the right questions, right? right? right. So how was the doctrine of the Trinity hammered out in the early church? It was, her, it was hammered out by people who were faced with questions related to the nature of God. And that was because they were participating in mission. You see this unfold in the book of Acts where um, as the church is on mission, uh, they're facing all of these questions and that drives them uh, to the word and it drives them to their knees. Um, and so it's the mission that causes them to ask those questions uh, that then gives birth to theological reflection, I think. And then uh, that, that hammered out theology uh, is then incorporated into the life and the ministry of the church, which is on mission, and it continues uh, in that uh, cyclical manner. manner. Now, as far as uh, you know, our students here and people who are uh, affiliated with Southeastern Seminary, the thing that I would say is um, if, if the locus of your time at Southeastern Seminary is spent just in the library, uh, then chances are you're not even asking the right questions. Um, it's when you're involved in ministry. Uh, you know, we talk about here uh, that engaging the head, the heart, and the hands. It's when you're involved in ministry that you begin to ask the right questions that drive you to the scriptures and to the plethora of resources that are here in this library as you seek to answer those questions in a way that's faithful to the gospel. And so I really think that that relationship is there. If we want to be asking the right questions, we've got to be participants in that mission in the way that Dr. Ashford articulated. It's pretty comprehensive. I don't know. Uh, that I would add a whole lot to that. So uh, I would agree with both of these men. And I think, you know, just on a practical level for those sitting here, uh, kind of if I took in summary what these gentlemen are saying is, uh, you know, as, as you are studying whatever field that you're in, um, hopefully the goal would be uh, that uh, really we see it in the scriptures that we, you would love God, engage God with your whole being, and likewise love your neighbor. And so whatever discipline that means, whether you're specifically in a missions area, whether you're training to um, go into the pulpit in a church, uh, whether you're in the biblical languages, whatever field that is, that if you simply, um, if it, as Dr. Robinson said, if it's just insular, um, and it does build me up, yet I never have any engagement outside of that in the church, in the community, and things of that nature, then there's, there's a disconnect there, um, I think, missiologically speaking. However, if, if I'm doing this simply to engage the, the culture or the community around me, yet uh, my love for God uh, has, has dwarfed in the time that I'm here, then I think uh, there's another huge disconnect. And so in your academic studies and fields, uh, it is both for the church uh, it's also for the academy, but it's for the people that you live among. And so I think at that place, uh, the intimate connection uh, between the two great loves, love of God and love of neighbor, really kind of fan uh, what uh, really the, the Imago Dei, the image of God, is meant to be, uh, but also that flows from and back into the Missio Dei. And I think Romans eleven thirty six speaks to that as well. So, All right. Thank you, gentlemen. I'm going to ask kind of a personal question, just so these guys can actually see how it's played out yeah. in your life. But uh, with your experience on the on the mission field, how is that uh, maybe one way that's influenced you guys uh, the most in your academic disciplines, or how has that contributed or um, uh, influenced your academic discipline? So I won't be uh, last again to weigh in on something. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll jump in and let these guys agree with me, hopefully. Um, but. Uh, uh, I, I think for me, really, um, uh, for me, it was my experience on the field uh, that drove me towards more academic pursuit. Um, I wouldn't have said that as I as I had as I went to the field. Um, always enjoyed this arena uh, of academics and scholarship, but but one of the things I began to see in, in the part of the world uh, where my family and I served uh, was it was a difficult place. Um, in terms of hard ground that you hear about oftentimes among people and in, in certain contexts, it was very difficult. Uh, few and far between of people coming to faith, uh, trying to figure out how do you then pull, uh, build into people's lives through disciple making, how do you see the church birthed in an area where it hadn't been 
as far as I know, for generations upon generations. And so uh, in conversation uh, with other uh, workers, other believers, uh, what I began to see was it was a lot of whatever it takes to get the job done. Now, on one hand, that's that's not a bad thing. You, you've got to be willing to press and push. Uh, but what that meant in, in practical everyday life was uh, they didn't hold what I thought would be central in terms of a, a biblical worldview, uh, biblical understanding of, of God and his good world and how that plays out in the lives of people. And so they may buy into a questionable methodology on the field. Uh, questionable things of um, how they would engage people with the gospel and, and certain ground that they would give way that I wasn't comfortable with. And so uh, as I began to see this, as I began to ask questions about that uh, in my own life, it really drove me towards how do I wed together the, the realm of missions and missiology and the understanding of, of ethics and, and how how we are to live out in a, in a, on a daily basis um, what we say is true about God and what we believe about him and how do we then transfer that to people that have never heard about him. And so for me it really began to drive this passion uh, to pull the realms of ethics and, and, and mission together. Um, and, uh, and so that's when I began to think about coming back here. And, uh, and that's ultimately where I ended up writing of, of in the realm of ethics and missiology because um, I began to see in the academy uh, missiologists, when they dealt with ethics, uh, simply dealt with it on, on a case-by-case -case basis. There wasn't a theological mooring to it, and that worried me. Um, on the other hand, ethicists, when they began to speak about missions or things overseas, uh, they didn't have the experience, as we've talked about. And so it was really just for the academy. It didn't have any bearing on real life. And so I thought, well, um, I've had some experience. I have these passions, and, and I've gotten a good foundation, but I want to press further scholarly. And so I began to pull these worlds together so that when people said, I love God with my whole being, I want to engage whole people, um, and I want to love them in such a way so that when they become believers, when we begin to disciple and build into the church, uh, they can genuinely and with integrity say, I love God with my whole being, and I haven't made questionable decisions along the way uh, to do that. So, so uh, when you asked that question, I was thinking back almost 20 years ago, I arrived on this campus uh, to start my MDiv studies, and uh, I think I would have embodied uh, the uh, the notion that a first year MDiv student is a really dangerous thing uh, because I uh, had all of the right answers. Uh, the problem was, and you've heard me say this already in this interview, uh, I, I wasn't even asking the right questions. So I was very confident um, in my knowledge uh, of things that really honestly didn't matter a whole lot. And it wasn't until the, uh, I moved with my family to South Asia uh, that I realized I was working with a very, um, very simple uh, 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 tribal people group in the Himalayas. Um, literacy rate was relatively low. Um, educational level was, um, you know, from from Western standards would have been middle school at best. And having to take the theological concepts that I'd learned here at Southeastern and trying to communicate those things in a very simple and reproducible manner, uh, then I started asking some of the right questions. And over the course of the next decade, interacting in various contexts, predominantly in South Asia, but in some uh, mission contexts, uh, like in Latin America, where the church is a little more developed, um, uh, the, the longer that I participated in mission, uh, the more I needed theological reflection, the more I needed uh, the academy. And so really my, um, my entrance into studying missiology as a discipline um, came as a result of uh, recognizing what the questions were. It was in the context of that mission that I started asking uh, some of the right questions. And it's interesting now, um, I'm back here, uh, you know, almost 20 years later, and I'm teaching some of the same classes that I took, and, and I always kind of jest because most of the papers that I wrote as an MDiv student, I disagree with now. Um, uh, my conclusions that I arrived at when I was just doing my studies in the library or in my home, but not really participating in missions, I disagree with the, the, the place that I arrived uh, there, divorced from mission, 
it was in participating in mission that I really um, began to, to ask the right questions and to hammer out, I think, uh, more biblically faithful uh, responses to those questions. So what do you do with that degree now if you don't agree with it? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's 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 hanging on my wall. Yeah, that's right. So you know, I can think of five or ten things to say, but for the sake of everyone here, let me limit myself. Um, may I say two things, please? Yes. So so I think one thing that I learned about, and I realized that I had learned it about halfway through my time in a Central Asian portion of Russia, is when a person is gospeling, I realize the need in most situations to gospel by means of the Bible's narrative structure. And here's what I mean. I was sharing the gospel repeatedly. I mean, numerous times a day. Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't, I don't remember a day that went by when I didn't share the gospel numerous times. And I didn't even have to initiate the conversation there. People initiated it with me. You know, they said, why aren't you sleeping with our girls? Are you a Mormon or are you gay? Literally, I mean, it's really, that's what they said to me. And so it was actually my life, it was my ethic that drew me into gospel conversations. But when I would articulate the gospel, I would do something like four spiritual laws, which, you know, actually worked fairly well in a country where people already know the narrative. But I would say words like God, sin, judgment. And as I was saying those words, I realized later they were loading those words with meaning based upon their own worldview. And so there was very little effect. There was very little uptake on the part of the listener. I saw no fruit whatsoever my first year. It was only until I started realizing, wait a minute, um, brute facts or mute facts or, or facts and words left on their own are going to be filled with meaning by the listener. And so what I have to do as the speaker is fill those facts and words with meaning because facts and words are always located within a broader network of facts and words. And it's that broader network that confers meaning upon those things. And so I learned that what I had to do is tell this, this overarching framework of creation and fall, redemption and restoration so that when I said the word Jesus, they had half a chance to understand what I was talking about or sin or God or judgment or whatever. I think a second thing that I realized as I sat in my fifth floor flat in uh, Kazan, Russia, with a mosque and an, East, and an abandoned, almost abandoned Eastern Orthodox cathedral right outside of my window, and reflected upon my gospeling opportunities, is I realized that one of the things I had working against me was the fact that the plausibility structure operative in Russian society worked against everything I had to say that I knew of, there were no evangelical Christians in the arts, in the sciences, in the academy, in the government, etc. Now, that doesn't mean the gospel can't go forth. In fact, the gospel goes forth and often, most of the time in history, has gone forth precisely in that type of context. However, what I realized was one of the reasons that was the case in Russia is that Russian evangelicals and Baptists from years past had more of a separatist mentality. And it made me think about the United States, and I think my formative years as a Christian were, were separative, separatist. And I realized that one of the things that would be helpful is for us as a church in the United States to realize how meaningful these other areas of life are, art, sciences, university, politics, economics, sports and competition, human life basically, and to enter into those and redirect them toward Christ as we have opportunity. And when we do that, when we're faithfully present, to uh, borrow a term from James Davison Hunter and then load it with a little more meaning than he intended, uh, when we're faithfully present in those areas, that provides added plausibility for the gospel um, to go forth. When you have faithful Christians standing in university departments and, uh, and in political positions and in, as artists and as scientists and so forth, then when you speak gospel words, and there's that plausibility network around you. It really helps the person you're, you're speaking to. All right. So now our questions are going to kind of shift uh, directions a little bit and uh, kind of address some of the people who are more committed to, say, uh, New Testament studies, Old Testament studies, ethics, philosophy. Um, so we're going to ask these guys for uh uh, some advice to them um, based upon this foundation of their understanding of, of how missiology and uh, academics kind of has that symbiotic relationship. And so uh, this question may be a bit anecdotal. This is from when I was a master's level student, but I felt like, um, you know, that 
as someone who feels that the academic life best fits his or her gifts, um, I felt this, um, I was met with this idea that we have a choice between either pursuing missions or pursuing scholarships. Um, how would you respond to someone who feels like they have that pressure to, to, to do either scholarship or missions? I've just been talking for a long time, yeah. so why don't one of you guys kick it off? All right. Um, so uh, kind of the delineation between uh, pursuing missions, and uh, in most people's minds that means going somewhere, jumping on an airplane and going somewhere. So pursuing missions uh, or pursuing scholarship. Uh, I think really sitting up here is testimony that I don't think you have to do either or. You do both. Um, that, um, as we've kind of said, that that scholarship not only feeds into mission, uh, but it strengthens that. And then as you're engaged in mission, it actually shapes uh, not only the right questions to be asking, but even the answers that you're giving, given uh, oftentimes. And, uh, and I think, uh, from my understanding of, of some of my time here as a student early on, but even now, just the tenor of the campus, that uh, we do talk about every classroom a great commission classroom um, and I, I think it means more than simply let's get through the content of whatever field you're studying whatever thing you're studying and oh by the way um, if you want to go to the nations go to the nations I think uh, what most of our faculty uh, ha has is striving to do and hopefully your understanding is that uh, really in all all areas all fields uh, as you study that that the point is excellence uh, excellence in terms of uh, scholarship, uh, excellence in terms of your specific field, and the excellence isn't simply marked by a grade or a certain way that you write a, a paper, although it could be that. That excellence then be, uh, really plays out, as I tell my students all the time, it's when I sit down with you in 5, 10, 15 years. Uh, you know, if we're, we're overseas somewhere, if we're here in the United States, and I begin to hear about um, what God is doing in and through your life uh, in the people maybe you're pastoring, uh, in, in the community that you live in, uh, in, the, in the spheres that you live life in. When I hear about what God is doing at that point, not just in your life, in the lives of those other people, I think at that point then that's where the excellence comes out that you have uh, both participated in scholarship and mission, for some that will be more direct. That will be more direct in terms of I'm going to go somewhere overseas or go to a city. For others, I'm trained in such a way that wherever I live life, wherever, wherever I put down my pursuits, uh, that again, my scholarship has helped me lived out this mission of God in any sphere that I find myself. So, so I think that it's not an either or, um, hopefully that, it, that it's a both and and really a lot of that question of what does that begin to look like is not birthed here in the classroom necessarily. Well, I should say it is birthed here, but you don't begin to see the fruit of that until people really begin to live that out and minister in, in whatever God's called them to do. Yeah, I would, I would agree with uh, what Dr. Matthias says. Um, the, it, even the phrase, though, uh, pursuit of the academic life mm -hmm. um, is a little bothersome to me because there's, that's loaded with, with meaning, right? Uh, right. To, yeah. to borrow from what Dr. Ashford was saying a few minutes ago. Uh, we tend to think of uh, pursuit of the academic life as being divorced from practice. Um, and I even think about the research process, right? So if we're talking about uh, academic life, uh, the research process begins with a research question. Um, and the, the question that you pose, if it's a, a good question, it's going to lead you in the right direction. Uh, if it's an ill-thought-out question, it's going to lead you to some impractical, ivory tower, theoretical, divorce from reality uh, answer. And so uh, if we're talking about people pursuing the academic life, I would, I would say that let's reload that with new meaning um, and, and understand that uh, pursue the academic life doesn't necessarily, it should not be divorced from practical application. There should always be a so what uh, at the end of uh, the research process. So many ways this question can be taken. Yeah. Try to keep at least in ourselves again. Um, so, I'm going to take Old Testament, New Testament, and philosophy for a moment. Okay. So if you're Old Testament or New Testament scholar, um, I'm just going to talk about right now the scholarly studies themselves in relation mm -hmm. to the field of mission. And so doing something a little different from what these men did because they handled what they said really well, and I agree. Um, so 
I see serious continuity between Israel and the church in, in terms of their mission. And I wish that Old Testament and New Testament scholars would, would continue to, to delve into this. And there's been some really good work done on it recently. So I think that Israel was called to be a light to the nations, uh, blessed in order to be a blessing. And that this mission continued throughout successive eras as a tribal confederacy, as a monarchy, and then as a diaspora. And that this way of life, the, the Christian mission, was a full-orbed, whole-person mission. That the Torah, for example, is a missional and contextual code of laws to teach them how to be a light to the nations in an ancient Near Eastern context, not in our context. Um, and so there's this great continuity between Old Testament and New. And when I finally realized that, because I, I used to treat the concept of, of uh, uh, the people of God and the concept of mission entirely divorced from the Old Testament. And when I realized how, how rich Old Testament testimony was, it, it, um, I, it was like my hair was on fire. You know, I was so excited again. I guess people with their hair on fire would yeah. be excited. Um, so Old Testament, New Testament studies in relation to mission, there's some really exciting work to be done there in, in both fields. I mean, in New Testament, for example, the images of the church, Michael Goheen in his book, A Light to the Nations, has, has shown, and I think successfully, that the New Testament images, people of God, body of Christ, temple of the spirit, diaspora, um, new creation, these type of images are all missional in the broad sense of mission and even related in the narrower sense of international missions. Um, field of philosophy. Um, so I would say that uh, against, again here, I, I'm, I'm not going to relate this directly to international missions for the moment. I'm going to relate it directly to the Christian mission as a whole of redirecting all realities back toward Christ. I think the sphere of philosophical studies itself needs some mission. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, the discipline of philosophy is an aberrant discipline that has been corrupted and misdirected at every turn along the way throughout the history of Western philosophy. And that as believers, we ought to bring our whole person into that discipline, including special revelation, and reshape the field of philosophy. Now that makes me a distinctive minority within conservative evangelical philosophy even, and certainly the broader field of philosophy, because philosophy usually defined as the discipline that you don't use special revelation in. And the minute you use it, it ceases to be philosophy it becomes philosophical theology. And that's what almost everybody in EPS believes in ETS. But I would say that even, uh, but, but not me, yeah, but <laughs> that even that discipline should be redirected uh, toward Christ. Okay, so what about someone who feels called uh, to missions um, with, uh, in relation to academic pursuits? Kind of the same question. We focused on uh, the person who's uh, called to academic um, the academic life, what about someone who's called to missions? What, how, how is the academic life important for them? I can speak to, you know, from here at Southeastern, the way that we've designed our curriculum, even back into the mid-90s, has tried, uh, been, been an attempt to address this, like with our 2 plus 2 program, for example. Um, you begin your MDiv by getting two years of core studies here on, on campus, and then you spend the next two years on the field in uh, an apprenticeship-type role uh, with the International Mission Board. And so the idea there is to get the theological groundwork uh, and then to go and begin to apply what it is that you've learned reflect on that and then we come back into those modular uh, uh, courses that are offered on the field uh, with new insights, right? Contextual insights from the application of those things. And we've even expanded that into our, uh, our um, modified residency PhD program, uh, which was conceived, what, four years ago, five years ago? For the international? Yeah. It's been eight or nine. Oh, has it? Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So, almost a decade now, uh, our modified residency PhD, um, we're, we're taking people who are serving overseas, have been serving overseas for a decade or more, and uh, now uh, those people are coming back, um, not moving back uh, uh, to the West in order to study uh, theology, but rather um, remaining in their context um, and, and interacting with the academy. Uh, so that not only that they're shaped by the academy, but so that the academy also, I think, is shaped uh, by them and, and the things that they're experiencing. And so I know that's the case for myself. Uh, kind of backtrack a little bit to the, the previous question. 
thing about um, one of the PhD seminars uh, that I get the, the privilege of contributing uh, with, I, I, I co-teach ecclesiology and church planting with uh, Dr. Hammett. And the reason why that seminar was put together is you've got the ecclesiology piece, which is squarely within systematic theology, uh, but then the applied uh, aspect of that with church planting. And so Dr. Hammett and I uh, get to uh, shape that seminar together. Um, but I will say that over the last four or five years of uh, co-teaching that seminar, we've also reshaped the way that we teach it based upon the input that we're getting from those people who are serving on the field. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I think that it's been helpful on both sides. I think that the, the person who's involved in mission uh, can be helped by continuing uh, their academic pursuits over the course of time, provided it doesn't pull them away from mission and into an ivory tower. Um, and I also think that the academy needs the influence of those people in order to be speaking to uh, current realities and current trends that are happening because the tendency, even as a missiologist here, um, the tendency would be for me to um, speak about issues that were going on five, ten years ago, right, uh, when I was living there, um, which is why I continue to participate um, every year in uh, both North American urban missions and international missions because I want to be shaped by that. I want to be uh, informed by that so that I can, I can uh, direct my academic inquiry uh, towards uh, the things that, that are relevant for this generation. Um, I think uh, just uh, for those that feel like they're called to missions, um, and then there's the academic side, the scholarly pursuit as well, just some ways that I think uh, people may not think about how can I wed those two things together. We often think, um, you know, I do some of my scholarly work and then I'll be involved in missions, uh, whether it be North America or overseas, uh, later on. Um, and, and that's still a divorced way to look at it sometimes. I think. Uh, uh, one practical way that I, I'd love to see uh, even more believers and more Christian students uh, at the college level consider is uh, Fulbright scholars. Um, I think, you know, that's a way where uh, you can go anywhere in the world and uh, with a genuine academic pursuit that helps that particular context environment, but it also puts you in a position uh, to be uh, faithfully present uh, in, in a part of the world that you're engaging um, scholarly that you're meeting the needs of the community, um, and who knows, that may end up uh, turning into, uh, maybe it's an academic job, maybe it's a, a place that you come back to. So that's just one practical thing of, of just thinking outside of some of the ways that we've done this in the past. So I think uh, Fulbright scholarship, I, I think um, those that are academically inclined, um, if you find yourself in that position later on, uh, you typically have sabbaticals. And so instead of taking that as a chance just to uh, decompress and, and rejuvenate, although you should do that, uh, you know, maybe I'm going to spend six months uh, or a year somewhere else. We've got faculty that, that do a good job uh, with that. I think, too, then thinking of opportunities for whatever your degree may be. Um, I often talk to, for one example, our, our counseling students. Um, that uh, one of the great needs around the world, whether it be big cities here, whether it be places in the U.S. or around the world, is for men and women who are trained as biblical counselors, as faithful counselors that have the requisite skills and even licensing in some cases, that they would go and be members of a, of a church body, that they would go be in a community where marriages are broken, where uh, the community is broken in different ways, and they would use those skills that they have learned uh, very uh, missions directed. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities uh, for students now to even consider those things. I need to be quick, don't I? Oh, we're, we're good. We've only got two a couple minutes? more. We get, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, so three propositions. The first is that the entire point of a PhD program is to argue a thesis, to learn how to argue a thesis. It's not to learn a lot more information. I mean, you can do, you do that at the MDiv level. That's an information degree. You know, not just that, but it's mainly to give you information you didn't have before. But the PhD is not. 
The point of a PhD is to learn to argue a thesis, and that's why your papers should have a thesis, and, and that's why you, your culminating project is argument a thesis. So that's proposition number one. Proposition number two is that the Christian life is the argument of a thesis, or should be, and that thesis is that Jesus is Lord, and that words and deeds all combine to make a cumulative case argument that Jesus is Lord. Third proposition is that to be a missionary on the mission field is one of the most exciting and important ways to argue that thesis. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, it's difficult for me to imagine a place that would could better foster an environment for you to do scholarly work. Like when you are thrown, and that's how you feel, usually thrown <laughs> into that's right. a people group and a culture you know, a, a thesis is an answer to a question, as George was saying. And so you have so many questions that arise, and they're questions you've, many of which you've never been asked, or at least not from that angle. And you're learning how to answer those questions. And so my time on the field was just an incredible time of growth for me. And mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to argue that thesis, Jesus is Lord, to a group of people who had no idea who Jesus was, who spoke a different language than me, and who had been through a different history and a different cultural and existential context than I'd been through. And so it actually launched me into further studies. And so I guess this is not very articulate, but I'm trying to say that there is something, a really neat intersection between cross-cultural missions and scholarly questions. So let me just jump on that really quickly, I think, uh, not just for you uh, as the student learning how to argue and answer that question, I think going into different contexts and enabling those people as you, as you see them come to faith and respond, giving them the requisite tools because you've been trained, uh, but walking alongside of them in such a way that they can then live out in their own context because they will be shaping theology and missiology within their own context. It's, it, theology missiology is always a contextual enterprise but you will be able to have the skills to be able to help them walk through and think clearly through, as Dr. Ashford was saying, of how do I uh, essentially argue for the thesis, Jesus is Lord. And so I think that's a, that's a really um, great way and a unique way that you can take these individual pursuits, <coughs> wed them together on behalf of the nations. All right. Um, we'll try and keep this answer very brief. Uh, but the question that I have is, especially for PhD students, um, their whole goal is to get a job. All right. Uh, hopefully. No, it's to learn to argue a thesis. <laughs> well, well, there's. <laughs> well, after that. That's right. Yes, so you can get a job, hopefully. So uh, we have a glut of PhDs in America right now. What are some jobs that uh, maybe they could think about uh, overseas uh, in an international context um, that they could look into as, as PhD students? Most countries in the world, barring Europe, would hire an American PhD, even if they have a seminary PhD, and would hire them to teach in public universities. Yes. And you could get a job right. fairly easily. That's right. um, and then second, there's an organization that, I don't know if it's still called that, International Institute for Cooperative Studies that specializes in sending people with PhDs to teach in institutions overseas. Pretty much covers it. All right. Uh, you, uh, you know. I mean, yeah, that's, uh, and I would say that even uh, one thought is I've, uh, I'm aware of a, a person that actually went to a, a far eastern country uh, that shall not be named, a very large one, um, and studied, uh, studied engineering in uh, that context. This person, born again believer, uh, very uh, missional understanding of their identity and their vocation. And they went and studied uh, first the language of that country and uh, spent two years doing that and then uh, applied for a Ph.D. in engineering in that country, uh, finished that Ph.D. at the top of their class in that country and was hired by that university to teach engineering at that university. Um, which now is a platform for their church planting ministry, and they're paid by this government to remain in that context. And everything that they do in their, their personal life and even the way that they represent the gospel in their academic life mm -hmm. is overlooked because of uh, the level of scholarly um, uh, uh, 
scholarly depth and proficiency that they exemplified in their studies. So there are opportunities like that that exist as well, um, in addition to the, the glut of PhDs from our seminaries. Uh, there, there are opportunities for people who have academic pursuit to receive their degrees overseas and then use those degrees there. And just one thing for those that are thinking that way or maybe even in process of considering a, a Ph.D., especially if you're looking in this realm of missions or missiology, um, one of the things that I think is needed, it's growing, is uh, evangelicals to go into this sphere of missiology and theology and argue coherently, uh, winsomely uh, in, in different areas, whether it be some of the social sciences, what is the application or implication for missiology in these realms or as it comes into contextualization and certain studies. I just came back from uh, EMS, the Evangelical Missiological Society, and, and it was a great time, but one of the things I noticed is uh, we need the younger generation uh, to begin to pick up that mantle in terms of academia and scholarship and engage not only here in the United States, but really has, uh, it has um, uh, application all around the world. And so I would just say uh, it's a great pursuit uh, to go for PhD studies, and we need uh, the next generation to begin to step up and do that. Let me just say one more practical thing with relation to this, that, uh, you know, if, if the reason that one pursues a PhD is to get a teaching post, uh, then your motive is wrong. Um, uh, you're, you're going about it for the wrong thing. Like Dr. Ashford said, the, the point of a PhD is to learn how to argue uh, a thesis. Um, that thesis or that ability, that skill of arguing a thesis effectively uh, can be utilized in many different ways apart from an official teaching post. And so my encouragement is that, um, that you not just use as a bait the thought of teaching um, uh, uh, to, to drive you towards academic excellence, but rather that um, you really and truly desire to love the Lord your God with all of your mind um, and wherever he decides to use you, then apply those uh, critical thinking skills in those contexts. Uh, I, I think of one of our PhD graduates right now who's serving um, in uh, another context and his job, he's, he's not... Uh, paid to be a professor, but his job is literally to equip uh, hundreds and hundreds of house church planters who have zero access to any formal theological education. I can think of nothing more exhilarating than the thought of taking the ideas and the concepts that I've learned here and the ability, uh, the, the skills of argumentation here, and infusing those into uh, people in a simple and reproducible uh, manner. And so I would say don't allow the position uh, to be the driving force behind academic pursuits, but rather uh, allow your desire to see God's mission continue to expand his kingdom, establish um, uh, to be your, your motivating factor and wherever the Lord decide, decides to use you uh, with that uh, credential, uh, then be happy and make the most of it. All right, well, we're out of time. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for uh, coming and speaking with us today.